Good evening. Glad to see you all here tonight. If you will turn with me to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 4. And while you're turning, I wanted to just say as we continue our expedition through the Reformation in the coming weeks, I believe we need a slight disclaimer. We as Christians, as true children of God, have the truth. And all glory and thanks be to God for that. He has given us understanding of his truth. It is nothing we could have come to on our own power, by our own intellect. He sought us and bought us with his redeeming blood, as the hymn says. All of us have come to belief from unbelief. Many came from godless traditions. Some of us here tonight may have come from the Roman Catholic system by God's grace into the truth. Many of us have good friends and loved ones that still belong to Rome. Tonight and in the following weeks, we'll be delving into the history um, of the Reformation to show how corrupt that Catholic system really was and is. None of what we say will be a direct commentary on anyone or their intellect, their disposition, certainly not their salvation, who used to be a part of that false religion. We all came from sin, and that sin takes many shapes and directions, and we all came from something false to the truth. We study these things to better understand how to help people get out of the lie of Catholicism or false religions and atheism and any other spiritual error. So with that in mind, let us go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we discuss your Son tonight in his rightful place as High King of Heaven and Lord of his Church, we ask that you would aid our understanding of your word and how it has been perverted by the sin inherent in all men, men who would elevate self above you and worship themselves. This isn't just popes and cardinals, but every man and woman in existence. If not for our salvation through Christ and your intervention in human endeavors by sending him in the first place, we would be lost in our self-idolatry. We thank you for sparing us from hell, from our lives being a pattern of unbroken sin. Lord, we ask that you would continue to show us your grace and your mercy all the days of our lives. Be with us here now as we continue in this time of study and let your glory be the only glory gotten tonight. For it is in your holy name that we pray, now and always. Amen. Well, as we've been learning in greater scope about the five solas, I wanted to dig a bit deeper into one particular facet of solus Christus, Christ alone. We know that solus Christus is a summary statement of the substitutionary atonement, and that is that Christ alone could act as sacrifice for our sins. Since Christ alone was sinless, and in Christ alone we should place our faith for that salvation. That makes Christ alone both Lord and Savior. What I want us to look at tonight is the fact that Christ alone is head of his church. If he is rightful Lord and master over everything 
and everyone in creation, then it most assuredly goes without saying that he alone is head of his church that he himself founded. The cornerstone which holds it all together and crowns it with his glory and with his authority. The great reformers, Luther, Calvin, John Knox, Samuel Rutherford, Jonathan Edwards, just to name a few, all knew this great truth. And they believed it wholeheartedly because God's word made it abundantly clear. In our time, many church leaders, if they may be called that at all, either don't believe this very fundamental truth or they pay mere lip service to it. And it's no new thing. As Solomon said, there's nothing new under the sun. But tonight I want to delve deeper into history prior to the Reformation, where we see the first sparks of the Reformation in a man not known to many. Luther is called the father of the Reformation, but this man could rightly be called the grandfather. On the morning of July 6, in the year 1415, a man named John Hus stood on trial yet again for what would be the last time. After having spent seven grueling months in a filthy prison, he found himself shackled upright, hand and foot, interrogated ceaselessly, with no chance to publicly defend himself or his views. He faced a mock trial, and when he, <clears throat> when he got to that mock trial, that trial saw him shouted down into silence, realizing that there was nothing that he could do. Soon after, he was branded a heretic and then was marched up to a field outside of the city. Refusing to recant again, he was tied to a wooden stake with a wet cord and a chain was secured around his neck as if he were going to run away and escape. Wood and kindling were placed at his feet. The pile was lit and the flames began to spring up all around him. And he cried out, but it was not in despair. It was in song. It was a hymn with the refrain, Christ, thou son of the living God, have mercy upon me. Have mercy upon me. And so praying within himself and singing within himself, the flame consumed John Hus and he went to be with the Lord. Why did the Roman Catholic Church put John Hus to death? He hadn't began his life at odds with the Catholic Church. In fact, he'd become a priest. Born in 1370 into abject poverty in Bohemia, which is now the Czech Republic, Hus studied at the University of Prague and eventually was ordained in 1402, and his academia was far beyond any of his peers so that he was made the rector of the entire college in that same year. His major influence was a man named John Wycliffe, which you may be familiar with. Wycliffe's views a generation before on the supremacy of Scripture and the corruption of Rome would leave an indelible mark on Hus in years to come. Shortly after his ordination, Hus became the preacher of a place called Bethlehem Chapel, the main church in Prague, and it held up to 3,000 people. He preached in the Bohemian language instead of Latin, which made him a favorite of the people, not so much with the Catholic Church. But as it often happens, when one teaches through the scripture on a regular basis, Hus began to recognize the spiritual bankruptcy of the Catholic Church. He noticed how God's word was vastly different from the edicts of the Catholic Church. Regarding his transformation, he wrote, When I was young in years and reason, I too belonged to the foolish sect of Roman Catholicism. But when the Lord gave me knowledge of Scripture, I discharged that kind of stupidity from my foolish mind. 
It was this commitment to the Bible and to Scripture alone, as we heard last week, that would mark Huss's ministry for the ages. And because of that, he wrote, I humbly accord faith, trust to the Holy Scriptures, desiring to hold, believe, and assert that whatever is contained in them, as long as I have breath in me. And he did that very thing. When the Roman Catholic Church began the sale of indulgences in Prague, indulgences are a sale of um, fictional pardons of sins to buy off the loved one's time in a fictional purgatory so they can pass on to heaven. Uh, it's heretical and corrupt in the most profound sense, if you don't know what they are. Huss publicly denounced the practice, and it ultimately led to his excommunication from the Roman Catholic Church. But even after excommunication, Huss refused to stop and step down from the pulpit in Bethlehem Chapel. And the more he preached, the more heavily he leaned on Scripture, which he unreservedly proclaimed to be the final authority in the church. It is no wonder that Bethlehem Chapel was bursting at the seams. Huss was teaching plainly, communicating well the truths of the Scripture as a pastor should, while Rome veiled God's truth in indecipherable Latin and clouded mysticism. The sword of the Spirit was being wielded regularly, and Huss was a master swordsman. The keen blade of Scripture laid open the conscience and exposed sin for each congregant to plainly see. It was also offered the comfort of saving grace. One biographer, a man named David Schaff, wrote this about John Huss. His messages burned with zeal for pure religion and sympathy for men. With his whole heart, he was a preacher. Christ's chief command, as he reminded the Archbishop of Prague, was to preach the gospel to every creature. And when he was forbidden by that same Archbishop and Pope to no longer occupy his pulpit, he solemnly declared in a letter to the chief civil officials of Bohemia that he dare not obey the commands to cease and to desist. For to do so would be to offend against God and his own salvation. This is a man that stood behind what he said. This is a man who believed every word that came out of the mouth of God. So in order to make him stop, the church passed an edict that no citizen could receive communion or be buried on church grounds as long as Huss was in the pulpit. In order to spare the congregants that loss, he retired from preaching in 1412. He lived in the country and he wrote at a feverish pace. His major book was De Ecclesia, The Church, in which he outlined major disagreements with the Roman Catholic Church. The book was read publicly in Prague in 1413 and contained radical views in the eyes of Rome. Huss taught that the church was made up of predestined believers of all ages. This contrasted with the Catholic view that the Pope, quote, the Pope is the head and the cardinals the body of the church. Common lay people were not members and only communed with the true church through the Lord's table which for commoners was limited to the bread. They could not have wine. Huss also said in De Ecclesia that the authority of the Bible is greater than the authority of the church. Huss had gotten the idea from John Wycliffe and later Martin Luther would echo both of them. <clears throat> but the real reason John Huss was put to death is this. He taught that Jesus Christ alone is head of the church. He denounced all the corrupt priests, cardinals, and popes of his day as disqualified from any type of spiritual leadership. 
He argued that the true authority, the true authority in the church belongs to Christ and his word. He said if papal utterances agree with the law of Christ, they are to be obeyed. If they are at variance with it, then Christ's disciples must stand loyally and manfully with Christ against all papal bulls, whatever, and be ready, if necessary, to endure malediction and death. When the Pope uses his power in an unscriptural way to resist him is not a sin, it is a mandate. And Huss was right when he asserted that the church was not founded on Peter, but on the surest foundation that is. And that is Christ Jesus. He supported the assertion with the scriptures. 1 Corinthians 3.11 For no man can lay a foundation other than the one that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. The Pope, he said, who has usurped his power, quote, does not wish to hear that Christ asked Peter three times before he granted him the keys whether he loved them. Only after Peter declared his love for Christ did he bid him to feed his sheep. Now the Pope and man-priest do not love God and do not feed the sheep. They do, however, snatch the keys in order to possess worldly power. Very, very, very radical views in that day. And it was statements like those that sort of struck at the root of church authority. And in response, Rome burned them at the stake to shut them up. The main feature that really stuck out in De Ecclesia was the theme of Christ alone as head of the church. No one, especially not a mere sinful man, can claim that position in the same sense. No apostle ever claimed to be the head of the church in Scripture, but only a servant of the head, Jesus Christ. Plus, speaking of the apostate Catholic leadership, said, let the disciples of the Antichrist blush who, living in contrary to Christ speak of themselves as the greatest and the proudest of God's holy church. They polluted by avarice and arrogance of the world are called publicly the heads and the body of the holy church. According to Christ's gospel, however, they are called the least. The Catholic church killed John Huss because he defied papal authority. He did that by teaching that Christ alone is head of his church, by simply following what scripture says. And though the Pope and Cardinals had claimed that status for themselves, Hus was undeterred in his stance for solus Christus when it came to authority in the church, let alone salvation. Hus's stance began the revolt against the absolute authority of the Pope and the Roman Catholic Church. His commitment to sovereign leadership and lordship of Christ and the supremacy of his word cost him his life. But God used his stand to change church history forever. The reformers who came after Hus, they shared his commitment to the lordship of Christ. This is clearly seen in the Reformation principle of solus Christus. The reformers insisted that Jesus, not the Pope, is head of the church. Accordingly, the word of Christ, not the magisterium, is the final authority for faith and practice within the church. The head directs the body, as the Apostle Paul illustrates in our main text tonight. Take a look at it with me. Ephesians chapter 4. We'll begin reading in verse 14. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, 
and by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Martin Luther would years later in his table talk explain that same conviction of Christ alone as head of his church. The chief cause that I fell out with the Pope was this. The Pope boasted that he was the head of the church and condemned all that would not be under his power and authority. For he said, although Christ be the head of the church, yet, notwithstanding, there must be a corporal head of the church upon earth. With this I could have been content, had he but taught the gospel pure and clear, and not introduced human inventions and lies in its stead. Further, he took upon him power, rule, and authority over the Christian church and over the Holy Scriptures, the Word of God. No man must presume to expound the scriptures, but only the Pope himself, and according to his ridiculous conceits, so that he made himself Lord over the church, proclaiming her at the same time a powerful mother, an empress over the scriptures, to which we must yield and be obedient. This was not to be endured. The arrogance inherent in the papal system was so bad that Luther also said, I am persuaded that at this time... If St. Peter, in person, should preach all the articles of the Holy Scripture and only deny the Pope's authority, power, primacy, and say that the Pope is not the head of all Christendom, they would cause him to be hanged. Yea, if Christ himself were again on earth and should preach, without all doubt, the Pope would crucify him all over again. John Calvin in the Institutes made the same objections seeing that priests were more concerned with upholding the Pope's authority than with honoring Christ and his word. Rome does not care if the glory of God happens to be violated with open blasphemies, provided no one lift a finger against the primacy of the apostolic see, which is the Pope, and the authority of the Holy Mother Church. In contrast, he says, the constitution of the body, the church, will be in a right state if simply the head, Christ, which furnishes the various members with everything that they, have allowed, that they have is allowed without any hindrance to have the preeminence. It is the will of God to govern and defend his church through the mediation of his son. And that is exactly what we just read in Ephesians 4. These men adhered to scripture, to the word, the very word of God. This is also what Paul was talking about earlier back in Ephesians chapter 1 verses 22 and 23. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is why the scripture many times calls Christ Lord, because the Father has given him authority over us, his church. Paul again depicts Christ as head of his church to the Ephesians by paralleling the marriage relationship with headship over us. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 23, For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is also the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. No pope or church council can take that authority away from Christ. And since Christ is the head of the church, all those who have ever been ordained to rule over the church are subject to him. 
Paul again uses the metaphor of the human body to demonstrate how preeminent Christ is to the church in Colossians 1.18. And there he says, He is also head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place or preeminence in everything. Christ is the head, the church is the body. These are things that we have learned These are things we have learned over the years. But when we really look at that metaphor, we can see that the head houses the brain on a human being and directs the limbs to move, the organs to function, the the blood to flow. Everything in the body has this brain as its central processing unit. And that directs everything from sight to digestion. Without the head, there is no direction. Without the head, there is no function. Without the head, there is no life. A man, church, or organization that takes upon itself the title of head or Lord, as Rome has done, lies and does not practice the truth. They take upon themselves not only the title, but the glory that goes with it. And in doing so, they deny Christ what is rightfully His. May they be welcome to it. It is all that they will have. Pray for these people. Because they are making 1.2 billion people twice the sons of hell as they are. 1.2 billion. It was a census earlier in April this year. And it estimates that there are 7.5 billion people on planet Earth. 1.2 billion is 16% of the world's population. And they are damned for sure, unless God saves them through the teaching and the hearing of the truth of his word. And the saddest part is that like all other false religions, they believe they have the truth. During the days that followed September 11th, 9-11, President Bush, George W. Bush, called for a national day of prayer. He urged people of all faiths to pray for America. Interfaith religious services were broadcast from the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C. and from Yankee Stadium in New York. These services included clerics from Judaism, Christianity, Islam, Buddhism, and Hinduism. They offered prayers to the God collectively addressed as the God of Abraham, the God of Muhammad, and the Father of Jesus Christ. Popular television personality Oprah Winfrey led the service held in New York City and boldly declare that all people pray to the same God. If you think this is just left-wing lunacy, you're dead wrong. This is an attempt, just like in Rome, just like in Israel and Judah, just like in the time of the judges, to remove Christ from his throne and his rightful place as head of his own church. This is an insidious tactic in the war on truth. This world mind, which is driven by Satan, has been waging this since time immemorial. If we take the book of Revelation literally, and we should, we see the formation of a one-world religion. Whereas Oprah said, everybody prays to one God. Little g. In this case, it's the Antichrist. The enemy of Christ and every true Christian and all things of and about Christ. And he has the world worship him. I'm convinced that this is the end result of 
what's called ecumenicalism. And that's the belief that all worship God differently, as Oprah was saying. But it's the same God that all worship. Everybody comes to God in his own way. Everybody, we can agree on things. We can hook arms across the aisle. Do not believe it. It is a lie. A blind donkey could tell by comparing any three religions on their major points that the statement that she made is wishful thinking at best and blasphemy at worst. Statements like that of Winfrey and Bush only drive the mindset that's been carefully put into place over the centuries to prepare the world through propaganda technique to accept a one-world church, a one-world global religion, to accept one day the divinity of a man who is pure evil, a man who is empowered by Satan himself, an abomination that will slaughter millions in the name of spitting in Christ's face. And let me tell you something. When we entertain the notion that we don't have an exclusive monopoly on the truth because Christ has given it to us in his word, then we spit in his precious face as well. We cannot even begin to think about being ecumenical. The reformers had that attitude. Is it militaristic? You bet it is. We're at war. Spiritual war. The reformers refused to acknowledge anyone other than Jesus Christ, born of a virgin in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth, scourged and nailed to the cross at Calvary, entombed and resurrected by God the Father, sitting at his right hand, even as we speak here now. High King of heaven, healer of the sick and lame and blind, single, solitary savior of men's souls. Is head of his own church. No one else is. Not popes. Not kings, not false teachers. Nowhere is it more clearly stated than in the Gospel of John, chapter 14, verse 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. The repeated article, the, before each noun, way, truth, and life, are meant to underscore and define. It actually reads this way in the Greek, I am the only way, the only truth, the only life. And then to drive the point home, Christ, the Lord of our church, says no one comes to the Father except through me. Charles Spurgeon, we all know the great Reformed pastor in 19th century England, said this concerning the Protestant position on Christ alone. <clears throat> of all the dreams that ever deluded men, and probably of all blasphemies that were ever uttered, there has never been one which is more absurd and which is more fruitful for all manner of mischief than the idea that the bishop of Rome can be the head of the church of Jesus Christ. No, these popes die. And how could the church live if its head were dead? Just like we talked about in the analogy of the body, as Paul talked about. The true head ever lives, and the church ever lives in him. He commented further in a sermon that Spurgeon had called Jesus our Lord. He says this, kind of expands on that statement. The church of God in a very special manner calls Jesus our Lord, for there is not and there cannot be any head of the church except the Lord Jesus Christ. It is an awful blasphemy for any man on earth to call himself Christ's vicar and head of the church. Vicar, by the way, V-I-C-A-R is where we get the word vicarious. Living it out through someone else. So the Pope then is claiming to be Christ on earth. We are we are to, to pray and to worship through him. 
And it is a usurpation, Spurgeon says, of the crown rights of King Jesus for any king or queen to be called the head of the church for the true church of Jesus Christ can have no head but Jesus Christ himself. He says, I am thankful that there is no head to the church of which I am a member save Jesus Christ himself, nor dare I be a member of any church which would be content to any headship but his. You may put some other interpretation upon the title, but if it means what is meant in Scripture by the term head of the church, it is an infringement of the crown rights of the King of kings and Lord of lords. The true church of Christ keeps that title for her Lord alone and will not own another head. There is no lawmaker for the church of God but Jesus Christ himself. And no one can take his place and no one will be allowed to take it when the Lord wakes up his people to be loyal to what is written in the blessed Bible. This is our statute book. And we acknowledge no other but that which King Jesus has given us. How dominant and essential that truth is. Not only to our understanding of how the corporate church operates but also to our identity as individual Christians. Like Spurgeon, the faithful before him throughout church history have always preserved through the Holy Spirit an intense abiding devotion to the true head of the church, Jesus Christ, and Christ alone. Christ alone is the head of his church. And no one else can occupy that position. The reformers understood this which is why they broke away from the corruption of the Roman Catholic system. And the historical result gave us the Protestant Reformation. Father, as we conclude tonight, we ask that you never let the reality of your people who gave all, even their very lives, to fade from our minds. We must remember these men, Father. And we must remember how crucial the five solos of the Reformation are to the Christian faith, how they summarize everything that we believe about you and how we strive to live for you. Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior, and he alone is head of the church, now and forever. And we pray tonight, Lord, that you would help us to remember that as we go our separate ways. Lord, we ask that you would continue to press upon us the importance of everything that has come before. Not to give it preeminence over Scripture, Lord, but that church history is so very important. We need to understand how men in this world physically took a stand for your word. It's one thing, Lord, to pick up Fox's Book of Martyrs and read about people. It's quite another to study their lives through biographies and other writings and get to know them and understand that these were flesh and blood men who were sinners saved by grace, the same as us. And they actually gave their lives. And not just writing a few few scandalous or rebellious words against the Catholic Church, But, Lord, they put their money where their mouth was. They stood up and they gave their lives at the very risk of their own lives and their families' lives because your word is more important. Your church, Lord, is your own. And to take a stand for those things, they are eternal. They have eternal worth, eternal value. 
And we ask, Lord, that you would put on every heart and mind here tonight how difficult that struggle was, how important that struggle was. And Lord, impress upon us that that may happen again someday. Maybe not in our lifetimes, but worse, Lord, even in our children or our grandchildren's lifetimes. So it is very important for us now, right now, to be teaching your word and your supremacy in your church to our children so that they have a solid foundation and they have a love for you and your word that they can teach their children. And Lord, maybe that future generation will stand strong in the day. And the martyrs that we read about in Revelation 4 are crowded around your throne asking, how long, O Lord, how long until you avenge the blood on the earth? How long until you put evil away one final time? Maybe they will be among those martyrs. But Lord, they won't be. Not without a solid background, not without a solid teaching, not without the Holy Spirit moving in them and bringing them to salvation. Lord, let us not be lazy about teaching our children. Let us not be lazy about learning ourselves. Let us not take your word lightly. Let us not just come to church and sit in pews and listen and go home and have it fall to the floor. Help us to take it to our hearts, Lord. This is spiritual warfare. This is very serious business we are engaged in. It doesn't mean that we are to mope, Lord, we know that. It doesn't mean that we are to walk around always in a serious frame of mind. It doesn't mean that we can't be happy because you command us to be joyful. But joyful in what? Joyful in you. Joyful in our salvation. Joyful in the fact that we have a Lord and Savior of our church that cares for us individually as well as corporately. And casts his eye upon us all the time and never leaves us, never forsakes us. That is what we take joy in. So that even when we pass from this world, Lord, we will have that. Death does not scare the Christian like it scares the unbeliever. And so, Lord, I ask if there is any man or woman here that does not know you, that has not known you, Lord, that maybe grew up in a in another tradition, maybe grew up an atheist, maybe grew up in secular humanism in their house, whatever it may be, Lord, we ask that you would continually move their hearts, change their hearts, draw them through the Holy Spirit to you, to the truth, to the truth that we share, not because we are superior, because we are intellectually superior, morally superior, spiritually superior in any way, but because you, by your grace and mercy, have given us the truth and helped us to come around to that truth and shown us the truth, just as you did Paul, just as you did every Christian who's ever been. We thank you for that grace and mercy, Lord, and that long-suffering with our sin, because without it we would be surely lost, as lost as these feet, folks are. So, Lord, we ask that you would dismiss us with your blessing. In Christ's holy name, the Lord and Savior of this church. And now unto him that is able to do exceedingly, abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, unto him be the glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen.